Greetings, Race Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Brittany Snyder, who serves as Assistant Vice President for Unit Development at the Arizona State University Foundation. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you so much, Brent, and thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Of course, and we had the chance to reconnect just uh, about a month ago this week, in fact, at the Case Summit in New York City, which was a great action-packed couple of days. And uh, I've been looking forward to hosting you and getting to learn a little bit more about your experience in this sector, but also just who you are. And so we're going to start on that front. Uh, And I love learning more about our guests' academic journeys, their higher education experiences. And so take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that, Brittany? What was she into? What instruments or songs were you singing and what led you to Nazareth University? Yeah, it's been quite a journey. That's a quite quite a long time ago, I'm afraid to say at this point. Um, at junior year in high school, I was playing the flute um, and I actually had no intention of going into music at all. Um, I was playing lacrosse. We, I was an all-American lacrosse player in high school. And so I really anticipated going um, to college to play lacrosse. And so the summer before um, I went to uh, Nazareth, I sort of had this epiphany of gosh, I really want to pursue music. I was actually going to study broadcast journalism. And so I made a last minute pivot to music education. And it was a decision I have never once looked back on. So were you definitely planning on going to Nazareth or that decision also changed your college choice as well? It also changed my college choice as well. So St. John Fisher University, which is down the road, um, was where I was planning on pursuing my degree and playing lacrosse, but they don't have a music degree. And so that summer before I was supposed to start college, I just had this epiphany that I want to do something that I'm passionate about. And it led to a scramble, which I think gave my parents a heart attack. And I was able to be matriculated and did a last minute audition and the rest is history. Wow. So, so you're like just playing the flute one day and you're like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm on the wrong track. It and was then you call up the lacrosse coach who says, are you kidding me, Brittany? But <laughs> your, your, parents, your parents supported you, which I could see that not being the case uh, in many homes. Cause I'm sure you spent a lot of time on the road at lacrosse games and tournaments and camps and all the things that go into that. So very interesting. Absolutely. It was, my parents were very supportive, but I knew that I would have an amazing experience playing lacrosse in college, but I knew that lacrosse wasn't going to be my my path after college. And so I really wanted to make sure that I was focusing on something that would be a lifelong passion and a lifelong pursuit. And so made the really scary decision and so glad that I did. Is there a flute in that cabinet behind you? That's all I'm wondering. Do you have one in the office? Not in the office. I have I have my instrument at home and I, I still break it out every See, once I really I like keeping instruments like close by. I find that it if you're if you're watching this on YouTube, you just saw that I reached back and held up my guitar. I just keep it right there. If it's out of sight, it's out of mind. So, anyways, I need to change that. Maybe I'll I'll bring in my instrument and keep it keep it in the cupboard. And so you did uh, 
So tell me about music education. Uh, there actually have been a handful of of folks uh, on, on the podcast who have uh, uh, pursued music in their uh, academic journey. Were there any highlights from undergraduate or graduate as it relates to the study, the progress, the the specific performances or experiences that you had? I think the whole thing was a gift. I think being able to study something in depth um, that I'm passionate about and really spend that time um, was such a gift to me, both in terms of my passion area, but also in terms of teaching me the skills that I now use every single day as a fundraiser. And I think there's a really strong correlation that you see a lot of musicians that have made the transition to funding, fundraising as a career. Um, you know, you learn to work independently. You're spending hours alone in a practice room um, preparing and working. You learn to work collaboratively, working in an ensemble setting with others, making music. Uh, every week you go in for your lesson and you prepare something and you play for your professor and you need to be open to feedback, right? So you build sort of that tough exterior that I think a lot of times you need as a fundraiser to be able to go and do discovery work and to be able to have that thicker skin to keep that positive attitude and keep moving forward. Well, and what you're describing, you could probably say the same thing about lacrosse, right? I mean, I, I am more of a uh, very, very amateur musician, but I did a lot of sports. And, and I think about it a lot as, as I'm leading our company or as I'm meeting uh, you know, leaders that are struggling with, with talent. Like my coaches never hesitated to give me feedback. I went to my son's soccer practice this week. Every little thing is feedback, feedback, feedback. We don't even think twice about it. And then we come to work and we walk on eggshells mm -hmm. and the boss isn't sure how direct to be. And we're worried about hurting feelings. Like my coach never, ever worried about hurting my feelings. My coach cared about making me improve, about teaching me what needed to be taught. I'm sure you felt the same thing in music. And it just always confuses me why we are so comfortable both giving and accepting feedback in a musical environment, in a athletic environment. And then we come to work or sometimes with friendships, other relationships, family, and we just struggle with it. Absolutely. I think there's more explicit connections in our society that need to be made because it's all for the betterment, right? Everyone, I think, is offering feedback and, and striving to always be better. So I think there's strong ties to be made. So the flute was your gateway to Arizona. Uh, yeah. and it was your gateway to philanthropy. And I'm really excited to just hear about what inspired you to do uh, master's work at Arizona State and then uh, how you landed your first role uh, fundraising for the opera. Absolutely. Um, in New York State, um, to continue to keep your your teacher's certificate, you need to have a master's degree, which is not the case in all states across the U.S., but in New York, you need to have a master's. And so I thought if I need to invest in a master's degree, I might as well do something that I'm passionate about. So your goal at that time was to become a teacher. Correct. I had every intention of becoming a high school band director. That was that was what I set out to do. And so I thought might as well do something that I'm really passionate about, develop myself as a musician. So then in turn, I can be a better educator, right, to develop musicianship in others. 
And so when you're looking at uh, instrumental master's degree programs, I was looking at flute performance. It's all based on teacher. So I did a lot of research on flute professors across the country. And so I came across Dr. Liz Buck, who is the flute professor here, had a really great rapport with her, auditioned and never looked back. She um, was really the reason that drew me out to Arizona. And why is she great? She she's an educator and she is really someone who I think developed me not only as a musician, but also as an individual. And so being able to study under her, she's an incredible musician and to have that honor in addition to how she developed me really as a, a as a whole person, I think really was the whole package. And so sounds like a very positive experience and you're getting exposure to an amazing teacher that's inspiring you. Uh, and then you end up not going into teaching. <laughs> it's funny how life takes you on twists and turns. <laughs> so I graduated. I was really just looking for a job until I figured out what was next for my career, whether that be returning to New York to teach. Did I want to pursue my doctorate? in music education, in uh, performance, and really think about becoming an educator at the collegiate level. Um, so I really just needed a job until I figured out what was next. And so there was an opening at Arizona Opera in the box office. They needed someone to start their group sales program of all things. And so I thought, well, this is fine arts related. This, this feels still within the wheelhouse of utilizing my degree. And so I took the job and I was working in the box office for maybe two months before they came and said, we have an open back in development that we think you might be a good fit for. What do you think? And so I took the job and never, never looked back. And so just tell me about opera fundraising. People come to the opera, they watch, they clap, they leave. Then we do a wealth screening on the list of people that attended and we rank them based on other things that they've supported. And then it goes to you and then you start reaching out. I mean, what, what do you do? Absolutely. I think the nice thing about opera is that you see th these audience members and your subscribers on a regular basis. They are coming to performances. They're coming to shows. You know where they're sitting. And you've got opportunities for VIP receptions either before the performance or at intermission. And so there's a lot of unique opportunities in the opera or just the performing fine arts space in general to engage with, with donors in regular intervals and frequencies. I think the other thing that is amazing is that you have an art form to be able to showcase. So in addition to the performances that are on the main stage, we're able to engage our donors through in-home salons and unique experiences where operatic singers can be five feet away from you. And you haven't lived until you've had an opera singer perform five feet away from you. I mean, that's, that's power right there. So there's a lot of creative things that you can do in the fine arts space. I love that. Okay. I want to talk more about that as a point of reference, the upcoming performances in the current season for the Arizona opera include Frankenstein, the Barber of Seville, Romeo and Juliet, Don Giovanni. And there are shows in October, in January, February, uh, March, April. I mean, there's a real schedule here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what you're saying though is, no, 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 you don't even know, Brent. In addition to what you see on the website, there's a whole set of bespoke experiences that support fundraising. 
Absolutely. Backstage tours, dinner with the artistic director. Um, Arizona Opera also has a uh, young artist program, which there are a handful in this young artist program in Arizona is one of the top young artist programs in the country. And so to be able to have supporters engage with the next generation of main stage performers is really a special and unique opportunity. There's just there's so much to bring to bear, which is exciting to use. And so what was your outreach? What was your script? What are you leading with? Uh, because there are some people who, you know, may love the opera, but they think that that love is reflected in the ticket that they purchase and the kind of exchange of value, uh, if you will. Uh, it's another thing to sort of engage philanthropically. So what was the, what was the outreach? Absolutely. Um, really, I, and I think what was unique about my role, I was just starting as a brand new fundraiser when I started at Arizona Opera. And so it really was an exciting time that I think really helped me cut my chops because you're doing a little bit of a little bit of everything. So I was helping with the subscription renewals and the direct mail campaigns in addition to meeting with donors and um, and helping connect their passions with with the organization. But really, I, I think that it's it's the fundamentals of fundraising. It's being able to secure the meeting, really understand their connection to the art form and being able to draw a connection between their passion and helping elevate the art form, elevate the organization. And a lot of times, you know, keeping keeping opera and keeping the art form alive and going. And I will say opera in particular, I think there is people who who love opera are passionate about opera. And so if you can find those those individuals that are really passionate about the art form and you can create unique experiences to bring them closer to that art form, the philanthropic conversation is much easier. Can anyone sing opera? Like, do we all have it in us to a certain degree or is it a genetic disposition? I, I believe personally, it's a genetic disposition. I've tried, I can play the flute any, you know, all you want, but you don't want me singing opera. <laughs> That's good to know. So you're telling me I don't have a chance. That's fine. All right. You might have a chance. I'm speaking only uh, for myself. I don't know. Um, okay. So cool experience. What was your, like, uh, actually, I'll, I'll ask you that question later because there's another opera, uh, uh, you know, stint in your in your career. But you did have the opportunity to go back to Nazareth College. So big move uh, out of Arizona back home, if you will. And what were the uh, the highlights from that experience? I just hosted somebody who said, you know, it's a little different when you go work for the alma mater because you get in the inside. It's not all the nostalgia and, you know, purity that you might experience uh, as that alum or, you know, or student. So what, uh, what stood out? I actually loved it. Um, Nazareth's a really special place and to be able to come back and be part of helping to elevate the experience for the next generation of Nazareth students was really, really special. Um, and it also was where I really learned annual giving and being able to run both the leadership annual giving piece, but also the annual giving program in its entirety, which I think is so important because that is the lifeblood of the institution. It's where I really understood how to take data and make informed decisions with data, um, right. think about messaging 
And I think that annual giving experience and having that as the foundation for my higher ed experience has paid paid me dividends. Um, and I think the other part, fun thing about being an alumna of the institution, I, I actually taught the freshman seminar class, right? It was a lot of fun, you know, to be able to now serve in that, uh, you know, professor is too strong of a word for, you know, freshman 101. Um, but to be able to just be part of that community was really, really special. Love it. And then you had the opportunity to work with the Austin Opera and moved to Austin? Yes. Okay. So tell me about what led to that. Did they call you? Did you call them? How does one who is experience in Arizona, living in Rochester, find out about an opportunity in the Austin Opera? Absolutely. They found me, um, which was really exciting to consider that opportunity. Um, I think the opera fundraising community is not large, right? So I think they were able to see that I had previous opera experience, other now gained experience through Nazareth College. And so they reached out to me about the opportunity um, at the time, uh, didn't have any kids. Austin's an amazing city. Um, they were doing, I mean, it's the music capital of the world, right? So to be part of an opera company that's part of the ethos of the music capital in the world was really attractive. And so I made the move and decided decided to go. So you would categorize opera within the broader fine arts philanthropic community. Is there like a national opera fundraiser conference or is it more just bucketed into broader peer groups? Like who do you, who do you talk to? How do you stay connected among peers? And I think probably like colleges, you don't feel like you're competing with uh, other folks because it's such a hyper-local uh, experience. Is that right? I would say largely, yes. Um, the, there is an organization called Opera America. And so Opera America really uh, looks at the full field, right? So there's uh, offshoots for artistic directors, right? There's silos and fundraising is one of those. And so it really is an opportunity for knowledge sharing. It's sort of the case if you will, of the opera community. You create community, create co connections that you can maintain and bounce ideas off of one another throughout the year, which is really, really powerful in the art space. Well, if someday, I mean, we are not doing much work outside of the higher education sector, uh, although with the combination of thank you, we've been pulled into the broader nonprofit space, but someday if we decide to target the opera vertical specifically, I might have to reach back out, Brittany, if that's absolutely, okay. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so with both Austin Opera and Arizona Opera Company, what was your single favorite opera operatic experience? Oh, gosh, that's tough because each production has its own unique um own unique set of experiences and events. Or, so I, I will ask you that, but also for opera novices, is there one opera that you would say, hey, if you've never been, this is the one you should you should check out first? Oh gosh. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the classics like La Boheme, Don Giovanni, right? They're really approachable. Um, I think even today you can read 
right? The synopsis of the plot before you go, and you'll resonate with a lot of what those characters are going through. Um, I think opera is actually really still very relevant in terms of um, a way to tell a story about the human experience. And so I don't think you can, you can go wrong. What's the most confusing opera you've ever witnessed? It has to be the ring cycle. I mean, that's a you know, a long time to sit. There's a lot of characters, a lot of moving parts. Um, I need to diagram that out. I'm still working on it. Love it. Love it. Thanks for sharing. Uh, and then you had the opportunity uh, to to go to Rochester, uh, to the University of Rochester, and lead the parents program, which is sort of its own niche within growing rapidly, I will say, yes. but a niche within the higher education advancement landscape. So what was the state of the parents program when you walked in and what lessons uh, did you learn about parent fundraising? Absolutely. Um, actually, Rochester, Rochester was pretty ahead of the times in terms of parent and family philanthropy. When I walked in, there was a very well-established uh, parents council. So they had probably a hundred families that were part of this leadership annual giving level um, giving for the parents council. Um, they had send-offs in the summer, so they would travel regionally to engage parents across the country who were, you know, sending their students to Rochester in the fall. So I would say Rochester was actually ahead of the game in a lot of respects. And so when I had the opportunity to come in and take this role, they they again were ahead of the game and seeing that this is really an area that there's a lot of opportunity that we need to pay attention to. And so we were able to build out a presidential level um, parents group. Uh, we worked really hard with our enrollment management colleagues to continue to create a strong partnership with data. Because one thing I've learned about parent philanthropy and parent fundraising is timing matters. And the earlier you can get in front of parents, the better chance that you have of really advancing that philanthropic conversation, getting to know them. Um, it, timing is probably the biggest, the biggest key. I think the other key takeaway from working with parents is you have their most precious asset, right? And so to understand, a lot of parents want to impact their students' experience in a positive way. So I think there's often this conception of we'll treat them really well for four years and then hopefully the culmination of this experience will be some sort of philanthropic gesture, which I don't want to say never happens, right? It does it does happen. But I think if you can really work with parents to help um, either impact their students' experience or continue to get to know them and their philanthropic, philanthropic interests, because a lot of times... There's probably things at the university that parents themselves would be interested in. They might be passionate about something that is a little outside of their students' academic area of focus. So I think really focusing on treating parents like you would any other prospect is really important. So what is the private salon opera performance equivalent in the parent world? Absolutely. I think in home, we would often utilize a lot of our colleagues in our student success uh, pillars. So, you know, the executive director for career services was often someone that parents would line up. We had no problem uh, with attendance with, you know, traveling with our executive director of career services. The dean of students um, was really helpful. And then hearing from students themselves around, you know, their internship experiences or their study abroad experiences or their athletic endeavors. I think you can never go wrong featuring the people who will impact your students' experience prominently 
and thinking about the student experience. But there's got to be such a fine line between engaged philanthropist and helicopter parent. So yeah. without naming names, like, did you all have to navigate that? Did you have any difficult situations? I mean, that's got to be one of the real challenges with parents. Oh, absolutely. I think what was what worked really well at Rochester is that my role was the philanthropic role, right? That was that was where I lived. I did, well, of course, we do some concierge types of things of, oh, I'm so sorry, XYZ student uh -huh. was facing this this issue. Let me connect you with my colleague over in, right? So I was we were very disciplined about not taking those things too far on our own. But I also had a counterpart that was um, I forget her specific title, but really the head of parent engagement, right? So there was a very distinct parent engagement bucket and a philanthropic bucket. But honestly, I think we, it was boundary setting. We needed to be very upfront when parents were making requests to say, this is, this is how we handle these types of situations and being very transparent with our boundaries, because of course, you know, you run into those situations where, People want to push that a little. And so we just were very disciplined on that front. And what's your read on just the overall parent opportunity out there, knowing what you experienced there? I think parents is still an untapped group and demographic, especially in higher education. I think, I think the tough part about parents is getting the data in enough time to really move the needle. Because I think a lot of times people say, well, we've tried the parent thing and they haven't seen maybe the results that they were hoping for or looking for. I think really, if you can get the data piece right so that you can get in front of those parents as soon as possible, you've got just the world is your oyster. Walk me through, you wave a magic wand, it's all possible and it's all 100% accurate instantly. What is the ideal parent data set? T give me the timeline. Uh, students are admitted. There's key milestones throughout the summer. At some point, that whole parent list is uploaded into system A, and then you're in system B, and it moves over your, like, what is the dream scenario if you could draw it up? What do you really need to know? What do you want to know? Yeah, the dream scenario really is understanding um a few key data points, parent information. Um, so we were able to get a lot of that information from enrollment services um, around parent employment, um, all of those things. So we were able to get a good sense of just looking through titles initially to identify prospects, but we actually had data modeling. So we took um, high school information. So we took, we had a list of the top one or 200 boarding schools, right, in the country that we would, you know, give you a point if you attended one of these boarding schools. Um, we took a look at zip code information for the high, high net worth of zip codes. Um, so we really tried to get that close as close to class finalization as possible. So right around the May timeframe, because over the summer, we would be planning send-offs um, all over the country. And we wanted to really see where our key uh, concentrations of prospects were and be thoughtful about engaging those prospects intentionally as we were traveling for those send-offs. And then working to be able to understand move-in, right? So okay, can we work with residential life in an ideal world, work with residential life to know 
where is the student living? Great. Okay, I'm handing waters out in this hallway and then actually get to shake hands and introduce myself to say, hey, so nice to meet you. How is move-in going? And have that face-to-face connection. I, I love it, Brittany. It's behind the scenes. There are people listening saying, really? That's what you do? And I am listening saying, that's what you got to do. Like there are people listening saying, oh, that seems a little bit, I don't know, I'm uncomfortable. You're screening the information and then you're magically giving the water. It's like, yeah, that's what you got to do. And that's what you're competing with. I love it. Thank you for uh, the perspective. At this point in the story, I was not expecting the return to Arizona, but here we are. So tell me about what led you back. Absolutely. Uh, really, the, the position here at ASU, I had such a great experience working at my undergraduate alma mater, and then why not round out the experience with my graduate alma mater? Uh, so they had an opening uh, in the teacher's college that I saw and couldn't pass up the opportunity. The dean at the teacher's college here has such a compelling vision around changing fundamentally K-12 education, and I'm really passionate about the education space. And so to be able to partner with her and help support her work was was a no-brainer, which brought us back to Arizona. Love it. As I mentioned, uh, one of the really poignant memories on my entrepreneurial journey was having the opportunity to present at what's called the ASU GSV Summit, which for many years was hosted uh, right there in your Skysong facility. And it, it really has become the largest sort of ed tech entrepreneurship policy confluence of of people um and now it's moved on to different locations but uh it, it, you know it's sort of maybe a, a moment to just get your perspective on uh the leadership uh at Arizona State University Michael Crow's obviously become as well known as anybody in the industry but it's one thing to kind of read those headlines or see the big stories or hear about the you know groundbreaking partnership with with Starbucks or whatever it may be. Uh, it's another thing to be a team member who is sort of consuming that strategy and uh, trying to execute that plan on on a daily basis. So so what's it like uh, from that vantage point? It's amazing. I think as you think about the field of fundraising, ASU is is functioning at scale, which I think is a fundraiser is so exciting because, you know, as, as people are looking at more big bet philanthropy, people and organizations, foundations, individuals are wanting to be able to, to make a philanthropic investment and really impact some of the pressing societal issues of our day. And I think what's really exciting is that ASU is really working and a leader in so many of those spaces, right around sustainability, around you know now healthcare, uh, education, um, and I think the other thing that's really powerful is is the charter. If you talk to anyone from ASU for more than five minutes, the charter will come up. It is the north star of the university. Um, well, tell us about the charter. The charter, it's 46 words, not that anyone's counted. Um, so char the charter basically states that Arizona State University is about whom we include, not whom we exclude and how they succeed. It's about research for the public benefit and about taking fundamental responsibility for supporting the communities that we serve. So every decision that we make at ASU is based around that charter. And Dr. Crow's leadership, 
is around the charter as the North Star, which has guided so much of our work. I think it's exciting. We move fast. We've been number one in innovation for a number of years and counting now. Um, you can't go anywhere across campus without, you know, seeing seeing the celebration of that fact. But it's real and we get to move fast. And, um, you know, people are okay with trying new things and taking chances. And there's really a, an ethos of entrepreneurship in, included in that innovation. So it's a fun place to be. I love it, Brittany. It's clear that uh, you have really bought into that. And it is just a classic reminder of Leadership 101. Do you have clarity around mission and vision and, and values? And I just read the charter and you almost nailed it word for word. So <laughs> that's pretty, pretty good uh, on the fly. Um, tell me a little bit about that pursuit of, of excellence and impact and scale and your own perspective on training. I know that you've had a relationship. We just published a podcast, for example, with Jenna Goodman uh, at Generous Change. And so when you think about just that relationship or your perspective, what you've learned around training and development, I am guessing that when you started at the Arizona Opera Company. You did not have that level of rigor and training. Um, tell me about what you've come to appreciate about uh, that aspect of the work and, and if there are specific tips or tricks that maybe you picked up from Jenna and team. Yeah, absolutely. I think professional development writ large for our industry is something that is so important. You know, I think a lot of people out there that are they're in the hiring market right now are seeing that there's a little bit of gap, right, in terms of the talent that we need to move our organizations forward with the pipeline that's out there. And so I'm really... Um, just so grateful for the foundation here to have the opportunity to really pursue the professional development angle, because I think it is something that is important for us as an organization in terms of our pipeline development, but just in service of the fundraising field writ large. So we've had the, we've got programs that range from, you know, helping people understand the role of a frontline fundraiser in case they're interested in making that career switch. So we have our own little pipeline development program, which is great with our Aspire program all the way through professional development for our frontline fundraisers with uh, Jenna and Generous Change. And I think the beautiful thing about our work with Fundraisers University with Generous Change is they provide such specific and actionable tools that our teams could put into practice right away. And I will say they provide an email, you know, a discovery email template, and our teams have seen an uptick in conversion from outreach to, uh, to visits. In a, in a not insignificant way. So it's also given us a common vernacular as a team, right? So we put all of our fundraisers through this, whether you've been fundraising for two days or 20 years, right? And I think it was also really important to give us all a common shared language too. So I'm very passionate on the professional development piece. It's so important. Well, I think it's like uh, back to your origin story around learning to play the flute or playing lacrosse. Uh, there are just fundamentals. There are fundamentals that if you do them well, work. You do them consistently, work. If you practice them every week, it works. If you do it five times a day instead of eight times a day, you will get fewer results. It's like they're just, and I think sometimes there's so many distractions and competing meetings and priorities and this thing and that initiative that just like, I am going to send eight instead of five really well-written rooted in best practice template emails to the key people on my list today 
And if I do eight instead of five on a daily basis, I will be wildly more successful over the course of a year or a decade. Uh, and I think that applies to, you know, learning the flute or, or lax. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's in fundraising, similar to follow your analogy, it's back to basics. It's all about those fundamentals. And we all need those reminders, whether you've been doing this for five years or 20 years, having those reminders, I think is always is always helpful. And the other place that we've been pursuing professional development is around our people leaders, because I think that's another issue in our field is taking those really successful fundraisers and as they grow in terms of their career, moving into positions where they're leading teams and how are we providing the training as people make that transition from individual contributor to a people leader. And so we have a team that we really have been focused on. How are we giving our people leaders those tools to be successful? Because you know, just because you've been a good fundraiser doesn't mean you automatically have those tools as a people leader. And so we've been focused in that space too. Well, tell me about feedback, feedback culture. We talked about coaching. I do wonder sometimes if we call people coaches at work instead of managers, if they would just be like magically better at being direct with people. But, uh, you know, have you had managers or experiences as a manager where you feel like you have been either really effective or ineffective at providing feedback? I think feedback is something that everyone is always working on. And I think really what we've been trying to emulate from leadership right on down is clear is kind. And we've been really trying to provide our teams with frameworks because I think everyone has good intentions about wanting to provide feedback, but they struggle because they don't necessarily have the framework. And how do I deliver this in a way that's going to be received well in the way that I'm intending this feedback to be received. And so I think that's really the key piece is helping people provide that framework because I think people see what feedback needs to be provided. And we've gotten a lot of good feedback, speaking of feedback from our team around just having those tools on how to have those conversations. Um, it's so, so important. One of our values at Evertrue is it's called kind candor. And we rolled that out maybe a year ago, rooted on a bunch of input from our team. And just having that as a value has made it easier because we're able to say, Brittany, I need to offer some kind candor, or I'm trying to lead with kind candor here, but this is what I observed. And once you do that a couple of times, it just gets easier, right? Absolutely. And then, you know, how do you put... I, I've tried to envision this, right, of putting the problem on the other side of the table and it's us, right, on this side working together and the problem is something that we're facing together. It's not, you know, a combative me coming at you, but how are we collaboratively, here's what we're seeing, but how are we working together to address the issue that's on the other side of the table, no matter what the issue is? I saw a little while back that you, it was actually sort of a full circle moment. I saw that you had posted a new credential, a micro credential as part of a, a DEI and fundraising course or experience that you had at Florida International University. And it was fun to see because you shared that out on a platform called Credly. And I first met one of the early team members of Credly at the ASU GSV conference. So it was sort of this fun 
uh, experience, micro-credentialing being a really um, exciting uh, trend as well. But just what inspired you to pursue that? Any, I don't know, would you recommend it to others? And was there one takeaway that you'd be willing to share with our audience? Yeah, absolutely. I, again, going back to the charter, inclusion here at ASU is what we are about full stop. And so having the opportunity to think about what that inclusion looks like from our philanthropy lens and from um, creating an office of inclusive philanthropy, it was really interesting and I think really important as we chart our next five years forward as a foundation. Um, so I would highly recommend um, the FIU um micro cert to anyone who's listening. It was a really great experience. Um, the There was a team of us that went through this process together. And basically, it gave us a framework for how to take an assessment of basically the different programs and um, uh, initiatives happening across campus. And really from the uh, advancement lens, how do we help have those dialogues with our academic partners to develop fundraising strategies, um, both keeping populations in mind, but also with initiatives and driving initiatives forward. I think the biggest thing we took away from that was a framework to help us in our, our own internal work. And I think the other thing was really helping us think about our own internal biases and our own internal work that needs to be done as part of this as well. And then um, it gave us a common vernacular too, which I think was really helpful as we work with our prospect research team, as we work with, you know, others in our organization. So I highly recommend it. Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, Brittany, last question, favorite gift you've ever been a part of or most memorable trip, just like, which could be a great trip or a complete fiasco of travel? I mean, just anything that that really stands out? Oh my gosh, I'll go with the gift story. I mean, we have so many wonderful donors um, that have such genuine care for our students. Um, and my favorite story is really about this couple that we discovered through a, a stewardship call, right? They had made a $100 gift and just picking up the phone to say thank you, right? What inspired you to make this gift? And come to find out, no one had ever done that for them before. And they were so blown away that someone had taken the time to pick up the phone and call them. That started a whole now going on a five-year relationship where they are our biggest champions, advocates, allies, and are helping us think in new and different ways about how we support our students. Um, so they started supporting um, our students through an emergency fund, right? The, the pot of money that if a student loses a bus pass, they don't have enough money to purchase another bus pass and now they can't get to class, which is now going to be a barrier to finishing their degree. So they really were helping on the emergency side. Well, we went to them and said, well, what about this is reactive? What if we thought about a proactive approach to help our students? And so they started a whole fund that is all about a student success fund and students apply. Um, and it covers everything from childcare, laptops, um, travel, any, um, you know, you think about the College of Education, students are out student teaching. And some of our students, um, they're, they don't have what they need to buy a new wardrobe, right, for student teaching. So anything in that vein, they have stepped up in a big way and has made such a tremendous difference for our students. And so that is what fills my cup. That is why I get out of bed every day. And those are the types of donor stories that just make it all worthwhile. I mean, it's it's amazing when you hear 
stories like that. And they just seem so fundable too. It's like, there's, you know, do I want to give to XYZ foundation? I don't know. Like, do I want to help a kid that doesn't have clothes to go to their job? Yeah, I do. And a lot of people would, it's just hard to make that sort of direct, you know, connection when you think about sort of the the Maslow's hierarchy aspect of, of literally what can be the difference maker between, um, you know, somebody kind of getting that first spark, that first job. It's, it's awesome. How do you, how do you steward that relationship now that it started with an accidental or maybe yeah. a on purpose, thank you call, but you, you know, that call wasn't made with these aspirations, but now this is happening and there must be countless students that are, are, are benefiting from that experience. How do you, how do you fill the donor's cup with those stories? Oh my gosh, we connect them via Zoom um, with these students and the genuineness. And um, they're also just incredible cheerleaders. So when the students share their experience, they are also on the call, not just to take, right? From like, oh my gosh, these students are so grateful. They're not just there to you know take in the students' gratitude. They on the call are filling the students' cup with you can do this. We are so proud of you. This is incredible work. Um, and they've also um, written notes like of encouragement, like handwritten notes of encouragement to the student success fund recipients, which is just incredible. And the other thing I'll narrate is that we were able to bring them into the fold and they were able to take a leap to help us create a fund that we've never had before, which offered proof of concept to a few other donors that you know, I'm not sure if they would have taken that leap had they not seen the proof of concept of this in in action. And so the ripple effects are just beyond inspiring. Amazing, Brittany. I'm I'm feeling inspired. And I think just what you just said, though, like the Zoom stewardship student donor connection, even after the pandemic and everything that we went through, I just don't think we've even scratched the surface. I totally agree. Oh, easy. And I'm I mean, are these really young tech savvy donors that you're describing? No. Like humans get it. They know how to FaceTime their grandkids. They know how to do a Zoom. We just need more of that because there's still so much time spent on the scholarship luncheon or the in-person whatever, which is great, but it is so logistically complicated. It's big opportunity cost of what the staff could be spending time on. It requires travel. It's a burden on the students, right? These these students that you're trying to help. More Zoom scholarship, more direct video connection between student and donor. It is so cool to hear that experience. Yeah. I love it. Well, that's a inspiring way to close. I know that you've also shared, uh, I think you were with our, our friend, Anna Schlia, not too long ago on a podcast was, Yes, you mentioned that you really uh, wanted to encourage people to reach out and connect with other peers in the industry, uh, that that's been important for you. And so I might ask, like, if people want to stay in touch with you, I assume LinkedIn is a good way, but make the pitch to our audience as to why they should reach out to you and others. Oh my gosh. I think first and foremost, I always want to make myself available, right? In a mentorship capacity. I think the field needs more mentors. I also encourage people who are also interested in the idea of professional development for our field. 
uh, who are also like-minded and passionate about that. I would love to connect and, and join forces to think about that in a more holistic way, just for fundraising in general, because it's an amazing field that we need more people invested in growing in. Um, and in general, I think it's just important to connect with other fundraisers and share best practices. And I enjoy that so much. So I hope your listeners will connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me on the ASU website, reach out via email, and I hope to connect. Well, I'd encourage everybody to do that. And it was great to, to reconnect at the at the Case Summit. And that was a great chance to see a lot of people uh, in person as well, but also fun to connect via Zoom and, and uh, digitally. And I look forward to continuing to stay in touch, Brittany. So with that, I will wrap today's episode featuring Brittany Snyder, who serves as Assistant Vice President for Unit Development at the Arizona State University Foundation. Thank you, Brittany, and take care, everybody. Thanks, Brent.